You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Chapter 101 The Decanter Ere the English ship fades from sight, be it set down here that she hailed from London, and was named after the late Samuel Enderby, merchant of that city, the original of the famous whaling house of Enderby and Sons, a house which, in my poor whaleman's opinion, comes not far behind the united royal houses of the Tudors and Bourbons in point of real historical interest. How long, prior to the year of our Lord, 1775, this great whaling house was in existence? My numerous fish documents do not make plain. But in that year, 1775, it fitted out the first English ships that ever regularly hunted the sperm whale, though for some score of years previous, ever since 1726, our valiant coffins and Macy's of Nantucket in the vineyard had in large fleets pursued that leviathan, but only in the North and South Atlantic, not elsewhere. Be it distinctly recorded here that the Nantucketers were the first among mankind to harpoon with civilized steel the great sperm whale, and that for half a century they were the only people of the whole globe who so harpooned him. In 1778, a fine ship, the Amelia, fitted out for the express purpose, and at the sole charge of the vigorous Enderbys, boldly rounded Cape Horn, and was the first among the nations to lower a whaleboat of any sort in the Great South Sea. The voyage was a skillful and lucky one, and returning to her berth with her hold full of the precious sperm, the Amelia's example was soon followed by other ships, English and American, and thus the vast sperm whale grounds of the Pacific were thrown open. But not content with this good deed, the indefatigable house again bestirred itself. Samuel and all his sons, how many, their mother only knows, and under their immediate auspices, and partly, I think, at their expense, the British government was induced to send the sloop of war Rattler on a whaling voyage of discovery into the South Sea. Commanded by a naval post captain, the Rattler made a rattling voyage of it and did some service. How much does not appear. But this is not all. In 1819, the same house fitted out a discovery whale ship of their own to go on a tasting cruise to the remote waters of Japan. The ship, well called the Siren, made a noble experimental cruise and it was thus that the great Japanese whaling ground first became generally known. The Siren in this famous voyage was commanded by a Captain Coffin, an Antucketer. All honor to the Enderbys, therefore, whose house, I think, exists to the present day, though doubtless the original Samuel must long ago have slipped his cable for the great South Sea of the other world. The ship named after him was worthy of the honor, 
being a very fast sailor and a noble craft every way. I boarded her once at midnight somewhere off the Patagonian coast and drank good flip down in the forecastle. It was a fine gam we had, and they were all trumps, every soul on board. A short life to them and a jolly death. And that fine gam I had, long, very long, after old Ahab touched her planks with his ivory heel, it minds me of the noble, solid Saxon hospitality of that ship. And may my parson forget me, and the devil remember me, if I ever lose sight of it. Flip. Did I say we had flip? Yes, and we flipped at the rate of ten gallons the hour. And when the squall came, for it's squally off there by Patagonia, and all hands, visitors and all, were called to reef topsails, we were so top-heavy that we had to swing each other aloft in bowlines, and we ignorantly furled the skirts of our jackets into the sails, so that we hung there, reefed fast in the howling gale, a warning example to all drunken tars. However, the masts did not go overboard, and by and by we scrambled down, so sober that we had to pass the flip again, though the savage salt spray bursting down the foxhole scuttle rather too much diluted and pickled it to my taste. The beef was fine, tough, but with body in it. They said it was bull beef, others that it was dromedary beef, but I do not know for certain how that was. They had dumplings, too, small but substantial, symmetrically globular and indestructible dumplings. I fancied that you could feel them and roll them about in you after they were swallowed. If you stooped over too far forward, you risked their pitching out of you like billiard balls. The bread, but that couldn't be helped. Besides, it was an anti-scorbutic. In short, the bread contained the only fresh fare they had. But the foxhole was not very light, and it was very easy to step over into a dark corner when you ate it. But all in all, taking her from truck to helm, considering the dimensions of the cook's boilers, including his own live parchment boilers, fore and aft, I say, the Samuel Enderby was a jolly ship, of good fare and plenty, fine flip and strong, crack fellows all, and capital from boot hills to hat band. But why was it, think ye, that the Samuel Enderby and some other English whalers I know of not all, though, were such famous hospitable ships that passed round the beef and the bread and the can and the joke and were not soon weary of eating and drinking and laughing. I will tell you. The abounding good cheer of these English whalers is matter for historical research. Nor have I been at all sparing of historical whale research when it seemed needed. The English were preceded in the whale fishery by the Hollanders, Zealanders and Danes, from whom they derived many terms still exitant in the fishery. And what is yet more, their fat old fashions touching plenty to eat and drink. For as a general thing, the English merchant ship scrimps her crew, but not so the English whaler. Hence in the English, this thing of whaling good cheer is not normal and natural, but incidental and particular, and therefore must have some special origin, which is here pointed out and will be still further elucidated. 
During my researches in the Leviathanic histories, I stumbled upon an ancient Dutch volume, which, by the musty whaling smell of it, I knew must be about whalers. The title was Dan Koopman. Wherefore, I concluded that this must be the invaluable memoirs of some Amsterdam cooper in the fishery, as every whale ship must carry its cooper. I was reinforced in this opinion by seeing that it was the production of one Fitz Swackhammer. But my friend, Dr. Snodhead, a very learned man, professor of low Dutch and high German in the College of Santa Claus and St. Potts, to whom I handed the work for translation, giving him a box of sperm candles for his trouble, this same Dr. Snodhead, so soon as he spied the book, assured me that Dan Koopman did not mean the cooper, but the merchant. In short, this ancient and learned low Dutch book treated of the commerce of Holland, and, among other subjects, contained a very interesting account of its whale fishery. And in this chapter it was headed Smear or Fat, that I found a long detailed list of the outfits for the larders and cellars of 180 sail of Dutch whalemen, from which list, as translated by Dr. Snothead, I transcribe the following. 400,000 pounds of beef, 60,000 pounds of Friesland pork, 150,000 pounds of stockfish, 550,000 pounds of biscuit, 72,000 pounds of soft bread, 28,000 firkins of butter, 20,000 pounds Texel and Leiden cheese, a hundred and forty-four thousand pounds cheese, probably an inferior article, five hundred and fifty anchors of Geneva, ten thousand eight hundred barrels of beer. Most statistical tables are parchingly dry in the reading. Not so in the present case, however, where the reader is flooded with whole pipes, barrels, quarts, and gills of good gin and good cheer. At the time, I devoted three days to the studious digesting of all this beer, beef, and bread, during which many profound thoughts were incidentally suggested to me, capable of a transcendental and platonic application. And furthermore, I compiled supplementary tables of my own, touching the probable quantity of stockfish, etc., consumed by every low Dutch harpooner in that ancient Greenland and Spitsbergen whale fishery. In the first place, the amount of butter and texel and Leiden cheese consumed seems amazing. I impute it, though, to their naturally unctuous natures, being rendered still more unctuous by the nature of their vocation, and especially by their pursuing their game in those frigid polar seas on the very coast of that Eskimo country where the convivial natives pledge each other in bumpers of train oil. The quantity of beer, too, is very large, 10,800 barrels. Now, as those polar fisheries could only be prosecuted in the short summer of that climate, so that the whole cruise of one of these Dutch whalemen, including the short voyage to and from the Spitsbergen Sea, did not much exceed three months, say, and reckoning thirty men to each of their fleet of 180 sail, we have 5,400 low Dutch seamen in all. Therefore, I say, we have precisely two barrels of beer per man for a twelve weeks allowance, exclusive of his fair proportion of that 550 anchors of gin. Now, whether these gin and beer harpooners, so fuddled as one might fancy them to have been, were the right sort of men to stand up in a boat's head and take good aim at flying whales, 
this would seem somewhat improbable. Yet they did aim at them, and hit them too. But this was very far north, be it remembered, where beer agrees well with the Constitution. Upon the equator in our southern fishery, beer would be apt to make the harpooner sleepy at the masthead, and boozy in his boat, and grievous loss might ensue to Nantucket and New Bedford. But no more. Enough has been said to show that the old Dutch whalers of two or three centuries ago were high livers, that the English whalers have not neglected so excellent an example. For, say they, when cruising in an empty ship, if you can get nothing better out of the world, get a good dinner out of it, at least. And this empties the decanter. Chapter 102 A Bower in the Aracides Hitherto, in descriptively treating of the sperm whale, I have chiefly dwelt upon the marvels of his outer aspect, or separately, and in detail, upon some few interior structural features. But to a large and thorough sweeping comprehension of him, it behooves me now to unbutton him still further, and untagging the points of his hose, unbuckling his garters, and casting loose the hooks, and the eyes of the joints of his innermost bones, set him before you in his ultimatum, that is to say, in his unconditional skeleton. But how now, Ishmael? How is it that you, a mere oarsman in the fishery, pretend to know aught about the subterranean parts of the whale? Did erudite Stubb, mounted upon your capstan, deliver lectures on the anatomy of the Cetacea, and by help of the windlass, hold up a specimen rib for exhibition? Explain thyself, Ishmael. Can you land a full-grown whale on your deck for examination, as a cook dishes a roast pig? Surely not. A veritable witness have you hitherto been, Ishmael. But have a care how you seize the privilege of Jonah alone, the privilege of discoursing upon the joists and beams, the rafters, ridgepole, sleepers, and underpinnings, making up the framework of Leviathan, and belike of the tallow vats, dairy-rooms, butteries, and cheeseries in his bowels. I confess that since Jonah, few whalemen have penetrated very far beneath the skin of the adult whale. Nevertheless, I have been blessed with an opportunity to dissect him in miniature. In a ship I belonged to, a small cub sperm whale was once bodily hoisted to the deck for his poke or bag to make sheaths for the barbs of the harpoons and for the heads of the lances. Think you I let that chance go without using my boat hatchet and jackknife and breaking the seal in reading all the contents of that young cub? And as for my exact knowledge of the bones of the Leviathan in their gigantic, full-grown development... For that rare knowledge, I am indebted to my late royal friend Tranquo, king of Tranqua, one of the Aracides. For being at Tranqua years ago, when attached to the trading ship Day of Algiers, I was invited to spend part of the Aracidian holiday with the lord of Tranqua at his retired palm villa at Pupella, a seaside glen not very far distant from what our sailors called Bamboo Town, his capital. Among many other fine qualities, my royal friend Tranquo, being gifted with a devout love for all matters of barbaric virtue, had brought together in Papella whatever rare things the more ingenious of his people could invent, 
chiefly carved woods of wonderful devices, chiseled shells, inlaid spears, costly paddles, aromatic canoes, and all these distributed among whatever natural wonders the wonder-freighted tribute-rendering waves had cast upon his shores. Chief among these latter was a great sperm whale, which, after an unusually long raging gale, had been found dead and stranded with his head against a coconut tree, whose plumage, like tufted droopings, seemed his verdant jet. When the vast body had at last been stripped of its fathom-deep enfoldings, and the bones become dust dry in the sun, then the skeleton was carefully transported by the propeller glen, where a grand temple of lordly palms now sheltered it. The ribs were hung with trophies. The vertebrae were carved with Aracidian annals in strange hieroglyphics. In the skull, the priests kept up an unextinguished aromatic flame, so that the mystic head again sent forth its vapory spout. While suspended from a bough, the terrific lower jaw vibrated over all the devotees, like the hair-hung sword that so affrighted Damocles. It was a wonderful sight. The wood was as green as mosses of the icy glen. The trees stood high and haughty, feeling their living sap. The industrious earth beneath was as a weaver's loom, with a gorgeous carpet on it, whereof the ground vine tendrils formed the warp and woof, and the living flowers and figures. All the trees with all their laden branches, all the shrubs and ferns and grasses, the message-carrying air, all these unceasingly were active. Through the lancing of the leaves, the great sun seemed a flying shuttle, weaving the unwearied verdure. O oh, busy weaver, unseen weaver, pause, one word, whither flows the fabric? What palace may it deck? Wherefore all these ceaseless toilings? Speak, weaver, stay thy hand, but one single word with thee. Nay, the shuttle flies, the figures float from forth the loom, the freshet rushing carpet forever slides away. The weaver god, he weaves, and by that weaving is he deafened, that he hears no mortal voice, and by that humming we too, who look on the loom, are deafened, and only when we escape it shall we hear the thousand voices that speak through it. For even so, it is in all material factories. The spoken words that are inaudible among the flying spindles, those same words are plainly heard without the walls, bursting from the open casements. Thereby have villainies been detected. Ah, mortal, then be heedful, for so in all this din of the great world's loom thy subtlest thinkings may be overheard afar. Now, amid the green life-restless loom of that Aracidian wood, the great white warshipped skeleton lay lounging, a gigantic idler. Yet, as the ever-woven verdant warp and woof intermixed and hummed around him, the mighty idler seemed the cunning weaver, himself all woven over with the vines, every month assuming greener, fresher verdure, but himself a skeleton. Life folded death, Death trellis life. The grim god wived with youthful life and begat him curly-headed glories. 
Now, when with Royal Tranquo I visited this wondrous whale, and saw the skull and altar, and the artificial smoke ascending from where the real jet had issued, I marveled that the king should regard a chapel as an object of vertu. He laughed. But more I marveled that the priests should swear that smoking jet of his was genuine. To and fro I paced before the skeleton, brushed the vines aside, broke through the ribs, and with a ball of Aracidian twine, wandered, eddied long amid its many winding, shaded colonnades and arbors. But soon my line was out, and following it back I emerged from the opening where I entered. I saw no living thing within, naught was there but bones. Cutting me a green measuring rod, I once more dived within the skeleton. From their arrow slit in the skull, the priest perceived me taking the altitude of the final rib. How now, they shouted, darst thou measure this our god, that's for us. I, priest, well, how long do ye make him, then? But hereupon a fierce contest rose among them, concerning feet and inches, They cracked each other's sconces with their yardsticks. The great skull echoed, and seizing that lucky chance, I quickly concluded my own admeasurements. These admeasurements I now propose to set before you. But first be it recorded that, in this matter, I am not free to utter any fancied measurements I please, because there are skeleton authorities you can refer to to test my accuracy. There is a Livanthic museum, they tell me, in Hull, England, one of the whaling ports of that country, where they have some fine specimens of finbacks and other whales. Likewise, I have heard that in the Museum of Manchester, in New Hampshire, they have what the proprietors call the only perfect specimen of a Greenland or river whale in the United States. Moreover, at a place in Yorkshire, England, Burton Constable by name, a certain Clifford Constable, has in his possession the skeleton of a sperm whale, but of moderate size, by no means of the full-grown magnitude of my friend King Tranquo's. In both cases, the stranded whales to which these two skeletons belonged were originally claimed by their proprietors upon similar grounds, King Tranquo seizing his because he wanted it, and Sir Clifford because he was lord of those parts. Sir Clifford's whale has been articulated throughout, so that, like a great chest of drawers, you can open and shut him in all his bony cavities spread out his ribs like a gigantic fan, and swing all day upon his lower jaw. Locks are to be put upon some of his trap doors and shutters, and a footman will show round future visitors with a bunch of keys at his side. Sir Clifford thinks of charging two pence for a peep at the whispering gallery of the spinal column, three pence to hear the echo in the hollow of his cerebellum, and sixpence for the unrivaled view from his forehead. The skeleton dimensions I shall now proceed to set down are copied verbatim from my right arm, where I had them tattooed. As in my wild wanderings at that period, there was no other secure way of preserving such valuable statistics. But as I was crowded for space and wished the other parts of my body to remain a blank page for a poem I was then composing, at least what untattooed parts might remain, I did not trouble myself with the odd inches— nor, indeed, should inches at all enter into a congenial admeasurement of the whale. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.